Previously on Newsbreak, Lotus FM. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program this Sunday afternoon. Um, excited to talk to you as I always am. Um, yeah, it's just really wonderful to to be able to connect with you. Um, and I think most so to um, listen to what you have to say. It's always very um, you know empowering in a community, in a democracy, to have the voice of people heard. Uh, to give them the adequate platform to speak it and to um, you know take that into a conversation. So always wonderful on a Sunday, love that. Um, so today we are going to be focusing. You know, there's still a lot of development with regard to the passing away of Amazuru King Guruzvelitini. A memorial service is scheduled now for Thursday for the King, and of course, family says they're likely to have their funeral then on Wednesday evening. So. You can keep tabs on that. You can stay tuned to our bulletins. We'll be bringing you more updates on that news break as well. Um, around the clock, we're trying to you know get you the latest. But I'm shifting focus today. Uh, we spent yesterday in a very, very, um, I think a warm conversation looking at the role that the king played within the Indian region community. Uh, real, real food for thought there. And, and I think it made a lot of us sad to know that you know, there was a man who, um, you know, had so much of time and respect for um, the community and to now then say uh, farewell to him. But today we're going to be talking about something that really shocked everybody. Um, this week it was the death of a um, bystander, a civilian, who was caught in the crossfire um, when students protested at the Witz University. It was definitely um, shocking to watch a uh, 35-year-old man lost his life. He was allegedly shot um, by police. Rubber bullets were used, we understand. And um, it's... It's... Um, yeah, I mean, I can't believe that happened. Um, and the family of Mtukuzi Sintumba, he was the man, the innocent bystander who was fatally shot. Um, they say his death has left them shocked and devastated. Um, you'll remember that he was leaving a clinic in Bramfontein when he was hit and uh, he's described the police action that, um, you know, police minister and others, uh, you know, d- d- uh, described the police action as inexcusable. So yeah, there's lots to talk about today. So I'm, I want to approach this conversation from two aspects. One would be to look at, firstly, the issue of student protests. This has been ongoing now for about 15, uh, since 2015. Um, and the fees must fall movement really picked up traction, gained its, its its sort of popularity. You know what's been achieved because uh, students are still asking institutions to write off previous debt and register uh, students. So that seems to be the major um, you know demand on the card. So we are going to be talking about that. We also want to see then um, what has the movement yielded over all these years. You know um, and. You know, it's 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 an interesting thing. This this I want to start off by saying this this point was raised um, on the program already. Um, why are people protesting? Why are students protesting? We had to um, struggle and pay for fees, and we still do. And I understand that. And yes, that is what you must do in order to achieve something that you want. You find a way, and you make a way to do it. And that was generally the sort of narrative in 2015 that we had used when looking at the Fees Must Fall movement. 
And then I take a walk on the streets of Durban a couple of years ago. I think it was around 2015. And I speak to students outside campuses, UNISA, UKZN, to get a sense of, listen, why are you doing this? You know, why are you protesting? Why are you halting lesson time? Um, what is your story? And, and, and I know you're going to say, well, it's no fault of anybody's. But look at the social construction of the South African society first before you pass on um, you know, your insight with regard to this. The South African society is based on copious amounts of inequality. The rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. That is, you know, in a layman's term, that is the way you describe that socio-strata of um, the country. So a lot of students tell me, I've got a father who's a gardener because that's the only work he's going to get because he was never allowed to have a tertiary education. It was either work or starve. And my father's a gardener and he's got two, three children to put through to tertiary. At points, we cannot afford to put food on the table. Imagine a 30, 40,000 rand per annum um, tertiary bracket. Now, a lot of people say, well, it's tough for me as well. But isn't that tough? You know, these are these are learners who say they don't have electricity. They study by candlelight. They don't have food. They have to travel such distances just to get to a university. So they have to factor in travel costs, accommodation, all of this. And this is why they're saying that the, the, you know, the cost of education is too much for the majority of South Africans in the country and try and understand it from that perspective. But at the same time, and this was said by uh, Finance Minister Tito Mboweni himself when he was pronouncing big infrastructure developments in the budget speech a few weeks ago. He said, we cannot have a situation where the very infrastructure that we build is destroyed when somebody's angry because that defeats the purpose and puts the country in a bigger fiscal deficit. So two ways to look at it. Uh, and I wonder what your thoughts are. Okay, so um, that was, you know, my opening remarks on, on on the point. When we come back, we try and get you some expert analysis with regard to this. Stay tuned. Expresso Morning Show is giving you, our loyal viewers, another reason to make Friday the best day of the week. That's when we give you the platform to send your loved ones and yourself a birthday wish to be celebrated by the whole country. Yeah, and you can make it even more special because if you submit the best birthday dance video of the week, you can win yourself 500 rand in cash. Nice video entries for the week close on Wednesday at 6 p.m. So get entering and have yourself a real feel-good birthday. Catch Expresso every weekday from 6 to 9 a.m. Escape, Escape the, the norm, norm with SABC3. Your favorite newspaper just added even more insight with the new Insider Supplement. From personal finance and politics to entertainment and property and so much more, you'll find the inside track from our world-class journalists and contributors. Get the inside view from the insiders only in the Insider. Exclusively in the Saturday Star, Independent on Saturday, Weekend August, Pretoria News Weekend, Sunday Tribune and Sunday Independent. Brought to you by the power of Independent. Okay, wonderful. You know where we stand right now, and um, I'll, I'll just you know reiterate to you then what we're talking about. Student protests. It's been that way since 2015. Students bemoaning the cost of um, education. We are focusing firstly on on the education aspect of it. Um, what we understand is that um, you know there's um, funding, NSFS funding that has been made available. Uh, political parties themselves have, you know, uh, reacted, um, you know, qu qu quite a mixed bag of reaction um, for the
the NASFAS funding that has been set aside there by um, High Education Minister Blade in Zamande. So all of that to talk about. But I'm quite um, grateful to be joined on the line now by uh, Dr. Sean Muller, of course. He's from the UJ, University of Johannesburg, and he's been doing extensive research uh, specifically on costings, costings around higher education, you know, over the past uh, couple of years. And I think definitely some insight to share. Dr. Muller, thanks so much for your time. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Dr. Muller, I want to, you know, before we go to any sort of reaction for what has transpired this week, uh, I feel like I must just ask you, you've been tracking this issue of the cost of higher education for years now. And each year we're back at this point in March debating the issue. Um, has much changed? What has changed since this fees must fall movement began? Right. So just to sort of elaborate on what you said about about the research that I've been conducting, I am conducting some research at the moment with some colleagues um, on on directly related issues. But in addition, I was um, advising parliamentarians back in 2015 um, when the Fusions Fall protests happened. You'll recall the parliament was, was shut down briefly, and various proposals were put on the table, um, both from the National Treasury and the Department of Higher Education and Training. So, yes, I have been tracking it in one way or form um, since then. And you know what we're seeing happening now is in some ways still very much a continuation of those issues. But I think... Um, I think a crucial, there are two maybe crucial points to make. The one is that there has been a very large increase in funding for NESFAS from about 10 billion rand um, to, which was about uh, in 2017 or so, um, to about 35 billion rand now. So there's been a huge increase. Um, and you know, in that context, it's actually even more of an indictment on government that we've ended up in a situation where students are having to protest to draw attention to their concerns, because there has actually been such a large increase in funding. Um, so that's the one thing. The second thing is that this also draws our attention back to the original decision that was made. And it's important to remember that there were some, I would call them serious irregularities from a public finance point of view in the way that decision happened. You know, normally we have, or we always have the medium-term budget policy statement in October of every year. And the purpose of that statement is to lay out the government's uh, spending, revenue, and other fiscal plans for the next three years. So it's to give an indication both to the public um, and to Parliament of, of, of what's intended. And in the medium-term budget policy statement that preceded the, the free higher education announcement, there was no plan for free higher education. And what happened is basically President Zuma almost unilaterally announced the decision. It was around mid-December, it might even have been on, on, on a public holiday, um, that this was going to happen. Um, a senior Treasury official resigned in association with that. Um, and then government, you know, the rest of government had to scramble around to figure out how they were going to fund this thing. There are a number of us who thought that the way that decision was taken was problematic. Some yeah. of the specific details were problematic. For example, it was only going to start by benefiting first-year students and not yeah, students yeah. existing in the system. And it also wasn't giving enough consideration to the long-term feasibility of that decision. Absolutely. But I think, you know, you've highlighted something that is, um, you know, relatively shocking. Uh, increase in NASFAS up over the years uh, significantly, up to about 35 billion rand now, but still the protests. So I want to then ask you, and, and you touched on it, but I want to ask you now, is it known why this is the case? If funds are being made available for students who cannot afford higher education to access it, increasing funds, um, why is it not reaching who it needs to? 
Right. So, I mean, that, that's obviously a crucial question. Why, why is this happening? Um, I took a look at the budget numbers again recently, and one does see that, for example, I think it was the you know, 2019 and 2020 budgets were, um, had planned about 37 billion rand in spending, so an increase up to 37 billion rand for, for this um, fiscal year. And the actual allocation that happened in the budget at the beginning of this year was closer to 35 billion, partly because of the cuts that are happening across government um, in response to the economic consequences of the pandemic and prior public finance problems. So, so there is, so that's suggestive. It's suggestive that that's one source of the shortfall. the thing is that the department has not provided a clear explanation at this point as to why this has happened. You know, how did we reach a situation where the department was essentially insinuating that new first-year students who otherwise would have qualified for the current NESFAS regime would simply not receive any funding whatsoever? So that's something that still needs to be made clear because it's not it's not in any way fully explained by the budget numbers that were received. And again, this is indicative of a failure. Because you see, what happens is that the institutions um, have a certain kind of discussion or negotiation with the Department of Higher Education and Training as to how many students they're going to take in. And the Department of Higher Education and Training has discussions with the National Treasury on the kind of funding that is required. So this this situation should have been anticipated. There, there shouldn't have been any major surprises. Of course, there's fluctuations year to year in how many students qualify for university, how many apply, how many will fall within the NESFAS threshold and so forth. But it shouldn't be big surprises. So somewhere in the system, there's been some kind of failure. Somewhere in, in, in the government system, there's been a failure. And it's not clear from the statements I've seen, whether from the minister, deputy minister, or officials, exactly where that happened. And of course, it's not surprising because governments, governments around the world are often not very forthcoming with the details of, um, of where they failed. Um, but the basic result seems to have been that students have entered the system or tried to enter the system, first-year students, with the expectation that they're going to receive funding as per the NESFAS criteria. And then the NESFAS basically said, well, we can't give you any assurances because we ourselves don't know if we're going to get enough money. And that's really what precipitated the current situation. And the solution that's been put forward, apparently, you know, and this is really from a speech, right? So the reason why the things I'm saying are speculative is because basically we don't have enough information at this point. But what the minister's announcement indicated is that the cabinet has decided to reallocate money within the Department of Higher Education. So there's, increase in, there's not going to be any increase in funding for higher education overall. There's going to be a reallocation from some other areas of funding in, in, in the Department of Higher Education training to NESFAS. Um, and what hasn't been made clear yet is where that money is going to come from. And one of the places it could come from is actually the allocation to universities themselves. Because it's important to remember that NESFAS funding goes to students, um, but there's, uh, they call them block grants. Um, there's, there's funding that goes directly to universities and, and TVETs um, from the Department of Higher Education and Training. So one thing they might do is they might cut on the university side and give the money on, on the student side, but that could still have other negative implications. Absolutely. And those grey areas just keep coming, haven't they, for the past six years, you one could say five, six years. Um, and, and, and compounding it, uh, and I didn't want to talk about UNISA because, you know, our time here is limited, but I just can't, even, can't ignore it now when you raise what you've raised thus far. Um, and then, you know, on one hand, an allocation, you know, an assurance from government that we are going to make some sort of allocation to NASFES to extend it, um, no direct uh, timelines and timeframes and targets on how they're going to do it, where they're going to get the money from. And it's still very grey at this point. And then the push by um, the Department of uh, Higher Education then 
to have UNISA reduce its intake of first year students by 20,000 to limit that, you know, um, mm. level of intake there. Of course, that's, uh, you know, gone to the Pretoria High Court and the decision has been set aside after review. Um, but that's enough to incite a student furthermore, isn't it? On one hand, it's so challenging for me to access funds allocated for me to get an education. And on one hand, if I go to an alternative space uh, to maybe kind of, you know, pull myself out of the um, undergraduate um, campus going um, space, that is also a bit of a challenge. So I wonder what it does to the psyche of the student. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not an expert who can comment on that, but I'm certainly very sympathetic to the students' frustration and their anger because, as I say, they've been promised these things, and then they, they you know, they, they come to take to, to take that opportunity, and they're told, no, the opportunity no longer exists, or the government is no longer going to honour its commitments, or the universities won't. So I'm very sympathetic to the students. Um, having said that. You know, the UNISA case is fascinating, and um, I haven't been able to get hold of the court papers yet, but it's certainly something that we're going to be looking at because, you know, as I've said, this process by which enrollments are negotiated between the universities and the Department of Higher Education Training has been going on for a long time. It's kind of a, quite a critical part of the system. So I'm not sure what the details are of the UNISA situation that led the Victoria High Court to, to overturn that decision. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see that because it could have implications for the system as a whole. But you, you see, the thing is that regardless of what happens on the enrollment side, I don't think the, court, the courts are in a position to oblige governments to spend money on these things. I mean, my understanding, certainly in public finance legislation, is that that's not the case. It would be a breach of the separation of powers in a lot of instances. So, um, so you know, the court may say, okay, that, that decision was irregular and, and must be overturned, but that doesn't mean that UNICEF is going to get any more funding from government. So, so the question then is, well, what is going to happen if they have an enrollment much higher than, than was negotiated based on the funding they were going to get. So that's the one thing. But the other thing is that these issues go back. I was actually um, part of the Council on Higher Education's review of higher education, 20-year review of higher education back in 2013. And one of the issues that I raised in, in, in those discussions was this issue of enrollment. Because what, we, what I saw at the time as a young academic was that vice chancellors and so forth uh, well, frankly, being a bit cowardly, they weren't, they weren't saying to, to the Department of Higher Education Training, look, you're pushing too many students into the system. We don't actually have enough resources to give these students the quality education uh, that's appropriate. Um, uh, and maybe you should think of finding other opportunities for young people rather than just trying to push them into the higher education system and universities in particular. But instead, what the vice chancellor said was, okay, we'll take however many students you want to give us. Just give us more money. You know, and that's, that's a slightly cynical approach because it basically, you know, these, these higher education managers are happy to grow their own, you know, empires. But, um, but the consequences for public finance were quite significant. And, and, and so the, the issue of enrollment is one that's kind of been dodged for a long time. But ultimately, there's a direct relationship between enrol enrollment and funding. Um, and, you know, successive governments, I think, have wanted to increase enrollment because it gives the sense that they're doing something for young people in South Africa if they let them into the system. Whatever yeah. happens, you know, when they actually I'm get I'm going to stop you there because, uh, you know, it, it, it bleeds precisely um, onto the point that, that that's been ringing through my head now as you speak. Um, and you said the sort of that cynical approach then will send your students and give us more money. Um, 
And from your research, because of course when you've done costings from an economic perspective, you know, you had to have looked at the number of um, students thirsty for a tertiary education, the number of institutions able to provide it, and the number of resources and personnel able to provide it. From that perspective, is South Africa equipped to provide tertiary education to all the students that need it? I'm talking from resources, I'm talking from costings, and I'm talking from personnel. Well, I mean, as I said, this is, this is partly a subject of ongoing research, and there are others who've done this research as well. Um, I, I think there's no clear answer to the question as you've posed it, because the question is, who, it's not just, so who are the students who need it, first of all? Second of all, who are the students who qualify to get it? You know, what actually are appropriate entry criteria? Um, and, and, but there's another issue, which is, which is one that I, I keep trying to emphasize, is often neglected, is, is the gulf between students who get in, between young people who get into the higher education system and young people who do not. And, and that's really crucial also for these public finance discussions because, you know, as things stand, the students who get into the higher education system, let's say they fall under the NESFAS threshold, they can get up to, say, 100,000 rand from government, um, you know, to cover their costs and so forth, and entirely legitimately so. At the same time, the universities are getting money on their side to provide education to students. So students are also getting value in that sense. Then you think about a young person who doesn't get into the higher education system. What are they getting from government? Well, basically nothing. So, so we've, we've got a system in which it's really high stakes. You know, as a young person, if, if you can't get into a TVET, you can't get into a university, you have very few prospects in South Africa, and, and government and society uh, are giving you little or no resources. So, so that's also something we need to take into account. You know, we can't, we are a developing country, we do have limited resources, and in all countries really, even in many developed countries, well, maybe not all, but in many, in many countries, higher education is still a certain kind of privilege. But it's also why only one particular route into a, um, into sustainable employment. Um, and so, so there has been a, a relatively positive shift away from the emphasis on universities broadening that to TVETs, thinking about the fact that there are many other skills that are useful in the economy um, and, and through which people can make a perfectly good living. But we still also need to remember the young people who are outside of both of those systems and get very little. And so when thinking of the allocation of money, we need to remember that it's not just about university students, it's not just about TVET students, it's about young people in South Africa as a whole. And we're not talking enough about the lack of resources for other young people who are outside the higher education system. And you know what that leads to then, Dr. Muller, I imagine, is the exorbitant unemployment rate in the country, doesn't it? Because you are creating um, a scenario where it's incredibly challenging to get a tertiary educa- education, whether it is TVET, whether it is, um, you know, at a university. And as a, as a result, it's impacting sustainable employment, isn't it? That's a different topic, I think, uh, Dr. Muller, so we're going to have to skip that one. But I want to ask you something, and I don't think you're going to answer it because you did issue a disclaimer by saying that you're not an expert in this field and your work largely, um, you know, is integrated into economics and, and research on the situation. But I'm going to pick your brain and just see what you what you could possibly say on it. Um, you know, we've seen the footage of students around this time, the violence, the intimidation, the burning of libraries, uh, you know, a lot of chaos. And the question then becomes is, well, why are students doing this? It's a, it's, it's a gross disrespect of the entire concept of education. And then the argument, the counter argument to that, it's the level of frustration for these starving students who want an education but can't get it. In terms of your analysis, that behavior of students during protests, uh, how do you view that? 
Well, as you say, I, I'm going to give a caveat. This is not an area I'm expert on, but definitely I, I do read very broadly in higher education, um, and I take a close interest in South African politics. So um, what I would say is, first of all, one mustn't represent all the protests as violent. I mean, there have been many nonviolent protests, many peaceful protests, and there have been questions about provocation also by the authorities and the police and so forth. Of course, there have been some incidents of violence. Um, but, you know, so, so on the one hand, there's the student anger, right? Um, but on the other hand, we have to ask ourselves, why is it necessary for protests? Why can students only really get the attention needed for their demands by protesting? Right? And, and this, is not, this is not a student-specific issue. We see, for example, uh, poor communities in South Africa, you know, when, they, when they don't have water, they don't have electricity, service delivery is not happening. The only time they get attention is when they block a highway. Right? And, then, and then they disperse with rubber bullets and tear gas and so forth. But, but ultimately, there's, it, it reflects a certain failure of the formal processes of accountability. And also, it's, it's also shown success, because as I said, there's been a massive increase in funding uh, from 10 billion to 35 billion in response to the Feeds Must Fall protests. Now, there is, of course, political opportunism, and I'm sure you can get some political analysts to talk about this. And it is disturbing how some uh, opportunistic politicians and political parties jump on student protests, which are ultimately about student issues, and try and politicize them for their own gain. And this definitely goes back to the Zuma era. We know that there, there, there have been statements that some students were co-opted by the state security agency. We know that there are certain political uh, factions of different parties um, who've tried to use the student protests for their own agendas. So there's that dimension as well, but that's outside the scope of, um, of the public finance and economics issues that, um, that I'll try and uh, stick to. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, that's just definitely been something fascinating that I've been talking about in terms of the political interference in student protests. Is it a student protest or is it a political protest? Has, has largely been the question uh, that we've raised here before. But um, I'll tell you what, it's really wonderful to connect with you. And thank you so much for the insight over there. Uh, wonderful, wonderful analysis that has uh, come through there. Um, and I think, you know, we look forward to, to a conversation about it at another point. So that was Dr. Sean Muller, of course, from the University of um, Johannesburg, expert in economics and, and research. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so that was us talking about the student aspect, the fees aspect, the numbers and the um, sort of research coming into the concept of uh, student protests. I got a WhatsApp and then toward the second half hour of the program, I'm going to touch on another very serious issue, and that is the allegation of police brutality. So uh, stay tuned as we have this conversation. Lots more to come on the program. Nothing but the best. The official drive with Lloyd Paul. Now here's a challenge from me to you. If you know the words to any of the songs in the mix this afternoon, then drop us a voice note of you singing along. And I got this feelings again. I guess I'm all confused about you. Your body, my body, everybody move your body. Thank you, Lloyd. Magical indeed. Lotus FM. Yeah. Yeah. Share the experience. Share the experience. Oh, I don't know if I should start asking you to sing your voice notes to me. It seems like, um, yeah, we've got some real big talent out there on WhatsApp. So, yeah, maybe one day I'm going to ask you to sing, sing to me your voice notes. Um... 
So let's go to our uh, WhatsApp line. Now we've got Mr. Daniel Chellen on the program. Hi, this is Daniel Joshua Chellen. I'd like to ask a question. These students that are being, uh, whose funds are being paid for tertiary education, if they qualify and become professionals like doctors and lawyers and earning millions of friends, do they pay back the loans that the others paid for them to study so that the generations that come can also be paid and the government don't have to keep getting the taxman to fund these things? Uh, these payments of free education. I, I think they should, once they start to work, pay back and so that they can have money in the kitty for the ones to come. And as far as the violence and the behavior of the students in the protests for free, uh, free education, if their parents can't afford things at home, will they be violent like the way they act on the streets and do the same at home? I don't think so. And furthermore, the person that was killed, I believe there should be more training for polices. In the old days, they had commando units. It's a, a, a unit that is below the army, trained by the army, and they were specialized in doing right control and so forth. And we didn't have so many cases. I was in there for 20 years, never used my rifle, not once. Never used any force whatsoever. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks, Mr. Jelen. Uh, Roy Singh, hello there. Good afternoon to you, Daresh and the Newsbreak team. This student protest, which is really of concern to all our South Africans, if funds are available, then why are they protesting? Are there interference from, from the outside? Uh, people are coming instigating them. Uh, that could be the cause of it, because we see some of the guys on television they all, most of them seem to be from outside. And uh, maybe the government might really look into this, or the police, or, or even uh, the uh, university itself. Thank you very much. This is Roy Singh Stanger. Thank you very much for contributing, Mr. Ian Governor. Good afternoon, Parish. Protesters burn, loot, damage buildings, and even assault and injure other people. There is lawlessness, and the police face stone hurling protesters and use rubber bullets to disperse them. Recently, a bystander was killed when police tried to disperse protesting students. It is difficult to urge protesters to protest peacefully and not be violent. Police try to protect people and property, and keep the peace. Protesters ignore the instructions and police use force, and this results in injury and even death. Thank you. Appreciate your comments today. Um, this anonymous, I think this is anonymous, hello. Good day, Taresh, and the news, and the news break team. Very interesting topic. Uh, the protest at the university is not called for. Reason being, why must other children suffer due to this protest? Furthermore, we all, I speak for myself, when I was at school, our school fees was two rand. 
and we had to pay our school fees. No education comes for free. Furthermore, we buy uniform, we buy stationery. It's all part of our education. If we need education, we need to pay for it. Nothing comes for free. That is why our parents sacrifice this time at work in order to give us a good education. Yeah, definitely uh, a charged sentiment when you do say that. But I'll go to the text message. Ale, hello there. Um, just trying to retrieve that text. Yes. The Fees Must Fall campaign was a noble one that was hijacked by a few that created violence and mayhem. A few were apprehended, charged and sentenced, not for protesting, but for acts of violence and destruction of property. However, the outcry from some of the... From some in the public and human rights organizations is hypocritical. Once a protest loses its peaceful nature, it loses its effect. Okay, we're going to leave it there because I do now want to talk to IPID about that particular investigation to get the official word on it. Stay tuned. Talk is cheap, Baba. Let the best team do the job on the field of play as the mother city faced the capital city in the quarterfinals of the NetBank Cup. When the drama unfolds between Cape Town All-Stars and Pretoria Callies. Do not miss out on the NetBank Cup quarterfinals. Passion on another level. Sensational flair and goals. Catch the battle between Cape Town All-Stars and Pretoria Callies. This Sunday at 2.30pm, live on SABC1 and SABC radio stations in your language of choice. Hashtag We Love It Here. Brought to you by SABC Sport. Join the Insider Essay this Tuesday evening at 7.30 and explore the theme of small spaces. See how a group of passionate friends from KZN are creating unique tiny designer homes. Meet Molalo Negondeni, who created a miniature replica of Joburg, which landed him an architectural internship. And discover modern handmade dollhouses by Karen Kelly, complete with tiny designer furniture. That's the Insider Essay. Tuesday evenings at 7.30, only on SABC3. Okay, welcome to the program, and we are discussing the protests out of its university. We've seen this week, and we started off by talking about the cost of higher education and, um, you know, the likes of that. And um, I think now we're shifting to another point of the conversation, the, the allegation of police brutality that did emerge from this entire incident. You'll remember that Mtukozi Sintumba, an innocent bystander, was fatally shot allegedly by police during a protest at Wits University in Bromfontein. This happened on Wednesday. Um, described by Police Minister Beki Kele as unacceptable. Um, I know he did say that somebody went crazy. Um, so those were some of the things that he said, and it, it, it's enough to just really understand how chaotic the situation is. I want to get some more details on that, on the official sort of, um, you know, where do we stand with regard to the particular um, situation. Very fortunate to have Indelika Kola. She's from IPID, the Independent Police Direct, uh, Investigative Directive, uh, joining us today. Uh, Indelika, thanks for your time. Uh, good afternoon, I'm Indelika Kola, yes. 
And uh, good afternoon to you and your listeners. Ndeleka, when we last spoke, you explained to us the situation with regard to the investigations. I know investigations had, had begun. What we have on the table is that uh, a man, a bystander, was shot, allegedly by rubber bullets at the hand of police. Is it confirmable yet that that's exactly what happened, that a man was shot in a protest by police? Well, that is what IPID is investigating, and uh, that is why IPID is, um, has employed various investigative aids to sort of corroborate um, the information that's available. We have witnesses that, uh, that have given us detailed um, account of what they have seen. We have witnesses who have captured um, a video of what transpired. We've got we've managed to get some more evidence, but there's also some information that we rely on that includes technical reports, ballistics, um, to examine and, and analyze what, what happened, which, uh, from, which wire, from which firearm was, um, which uh, bullet shot, you know, you know, all the sort of details. So once we get all that information, which is currently still being processed, and then we'll, we'll, be, able, we'll be in a position to, to give, um, to give a, a detailed account of what happened. Of course, we'll be doing that uh, in the court of law. So once we, once we finish with our investigation, then we, then we, contact, we consult with, uh, with the prosecutor for, prosecu- for them to grant us a prosecutorial decision or any sort of decision that IPID would deem in fair for that matter. So if, I, if the information acquired by IPID, then uh, the, the, the investiga- investigations had uh, deemed that there's a need to maybe arrest police officers and then they would also still require will still require a decision from the prosecutor as well to go ahead and, and, and arrest. But at this point in time we are still um investigating. Mm. And Deleka, uh you know when police minister says that the incident was inexcusable, that's you know definitely um I think cause for the police force, whatever the reason may be, to hang their head in shame that they were told that their conduct or whatever happened was inexcusable. How has, you know, the police organisation and the law enforcement organisation been dealing with this? I beg your pardon? How has, you know, police and the law enforcement organisations, the officers, your entire team been dealing with this? The fact that this incident happened and your police minister then says it's inexcusable. Well, what what the minister has said and what IPD is doing, let's separate issues. What IPD is doing at the point when a police officer transgresses or sort of um, transgresses the law, it operates the law. IPD comes in and it is a particular case because somebody has died allegedly in the hands of police officers. Our mandate is, as an oversight body, is to ensure that we thoroughly investigate those allegations. We put um. We put uh, our our investigative aids in place, and we we just sort of prove the evidence that is available in front of us. Because what is important for IPIC is to provide justice for the family, for for from Tokozisi, and also ensure closure for his family. And that is what we are working on. It is indeed um, undesirable. It is indeed unacceptable that police officers, when they discharge their constitutional duties, are, are seemingly misaligned to the constitutional principles and to their very own oath of office of protecting and serving the people of the country. And as such, um, as IP, we, we, we don't, um, it, it's not the way they are ought to, to behave themselves, and that is what we find ourselves having to investigate and prove beyond any reasonable doubt. So that's yeah, yeah. the, the police officer. 
Yeah, and Deleka, are you did you find though that iPad has to do this, you know, quite regularly? Uh, I could list many cases, but you know, I think we we know them by now. And of course, no um, cases linked. There are separate incidents with with separate um, you know reasons as to why they happen. But you know, from whether it is something like an Andri Statane, which you know ended up at court, so whether it was uh, allegations and, uh, and narratives about heavy-handedness of police during um, the past year in South Africa's lockdown, um, whether it was Nathaniel Julius' allegation of him being shot innocently by police, it seems as if police conduct in tense situations is constantly coming to the surface. And what it's done is it's got a narrative on the ground that police are brutal. So how seriously is IPED looking into this possibility that there is a strong case of police brutality in South Africa? Well, as I have indicated to you that the mandate of ITD is to investigate and give recommendations to SAPS. For example, if, if an officer has been found to have transgressed the law and there's compelling evidence, then we recommend to SAPS that they release the official. They, 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 in other cases, for example, if it's assault, we recommend that other officials, they, they put on, on unpaid leave. You know, all those sort of sanctions that are within the Labor Relations Act. But on any matters of criminality, ours is ITD to ensure justice, and we do that by ensuring that we provide, we, we leave no stone unturned. We, 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 in our investigation process, we dig deep to find out what happened, and then we send to the prosecutor, and then it goes through the judicial system that is in, that is that has been set up in the country for justice purposes. It, of course, this con- this conduct of police officers who condemn it as IP, you know, in strongest possible terms, because they are the officers of the law that have been entrusted with the responsibility of enforcing the laws of the country, and as they do so. They have to do so within the principles of the Constitution, and they have to do so within the ambit of the law, and they are not a law unto themselves. They are not above the law. That is why our investigators are, are very committed, and they are working around the clock to ensure uh, that, in particular in the latest case, they are doing their best to ensure that um, we get all these sort of approvals that we need and any processes. But we still want to do that. We have to strike a delicate balance because we have to ensure that... Um, we, we, we close all the bases, we, we, we are delegating our processes, we don't miss any steps, so that at the end of the day it does not compromise ICD as an institution and as well as the investigation that we are conducting. Yeah. Yeah. But the use of force that is not proportional in this particular case to someone who was working um, just doing minding their own businesses, it is indeed um, unacceptable from, from police officers. Yeah, of course. And Delika, they're explaining to us that the role they play, of course, they investigate and they don't necessarily, um, you know, um, go into those broader issues of policing. But having said that, I'm going to ask you a question, Delika, that I don't think you'd be able to answer from that perspective. But let's try it nonetheless. What's coming okay. through about uh, in analysis of this particular situation is that police really needs to uh, reassess and relook at its use of rubber bullets. When we hear of rubber bullets, we think, ah, oh, it's just a rubber bullet and it's just something to, to alarm somebody but a life has allegedly been lost now at, because of a rubber bullet we've seen footage of students bleeding profusely because of rubber bullets this week um, is there any sort of directive or um, you know guidelines on on the use of rubber bullets within the force because it's seeming to be as dangerous right now as metal bullets okay I 
according to SATS standing orders, it is permissible. It is permissible that the police officers use um, the rubber bullets to disperse crowds, because you know that crowds in, in our country can be destroying pro- people that are, that are, that are, they can get volatile, they can be destroying property, they can be burning the streets, sometimes they can, they are found throwing stones at innocent people and cars that are passing by. So it is permissible. However, South Africa is a democratic country, and um, when people feel that there's a need to change, there are democratic processes to follow to ensure that um, if, if, the, if, the, if the people in, at large feel that it's not working and they are able to employ proper channels within the system to ensure that they, they, they sort of give their their views and, and their, their strong views on, on what needs to change in the country. I'm sure that um, as a democratic country, something that, that, that should be considered or that could be considered. But at this point in time, and according to the standing orders of SAPS, it is permissible. Yeah, no, definitely interesting. Interesting to hear that. Indeleka, we're going to leave it there with you. Thanks for updating us on the investigation and extending the conversation. Uh, we will stay in touch in the coming week for the latest on this particular investigation. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate your time. That was um, IPIDS in Deleka Kola joining us to give us the latest um, with regard to that case. Okay, let's take you to WhatsApp now and uh, see what you have to say. Uh, chapter 2 says, um, sent us a voice note. And the listeners, you know, in the last budget speech by the Minister Tito Mboweni, he conveniently left out the stipulated bailout amounts for the failed uh, SOEs. It, it would be in the public's interest to disclose those figures as it's public money, taxpayers' money. We would like to know what amounts were set aside. It was in his statement, but he did not deliver it to us. Thank you so much from Chapter 2. Yeah, and we did expect Bladen's Monday to do a bit, uh, to um, provide a bit more of a, a more detailed analysis with regard to that as well. Okay, message here from uh, Masi Ben. Heartfelt condolences to our great King Ubaba Zulitini. He will be miss, we will miss his cohesion among our nation, Hamakatle Ubaba. And um, she says, we protested in the 70s, but it was done with caution, no blame game, and sensibly. We never demanded education from the old government. It was the duty of our parents to cough out. Um, Yeah, wake up and smell the coffee. After fees must fall, every new university entry will ask for fees to be paid. It's becoming the norm now in South Africa. Get used to it. We are beyond a banana republic. Zahir Danbar says, I don't know if what... um, if what I want to say fits into your topic, but what about the many Indian friends from Phoenix who had no lights and water, not even the 6,000 litres free, and parents was at the clothing factory? Um, they worked even short time, but they still studied and are successful, and even in the first world countries like the USA, etc., even without proper transport to university that they had to hike, etc., how did my friends and and my friends' friends make it. I do not mean to sound selfish, but um, there's far too much entitlement. And this was uh, even something that was mentioned by motivational speaker, Vusi Tembaso. So, yeah, he's, uh, so Zahir's point there on um, the sort of you know expectation to get a free education. 
Uh, chapter 2 sent a text as well. He says we are annually burdened with increased taxes on fuel, power, income and uh, multiple other ridiculous taxes with an economy in recession, no opportunities, no growth and high unemployment. Bailouts to failed SOEs are never ending and we continue paying for corruption. Yet the corrupt and protected, no convictions, no imprisonment. Um, okay, so he's talking about you know the state of it all in terms of a tax and a, a fiscal collection perspective. Rani in Stangermanner says, as much as the students have a right to protest for help with their fees, if there was no police presence, there wouldn't have been any shooting, thus resulting in the fatality of the innocent bystander. Each action led to this tragedy. Yeah, I mean, you know, we got a lot of, uh, from what we saw on the field, a lot of uh, students saying it's peaceful. We are peacefully protesting. We may be, you know, out here in our numbers, and that could be a bit chaotic, but we're not burning anything, we're not harassing anybody, we are standing in our spots and we are protesting. But at the same time, um, I did see police um, try and disperse blockades of roads, of, of some of those national roads and those uh, connecting roads in uh, in and around Vitz. So, um, you know, from that perspective, yes, you do see the sort of tension that would erupt on the street. Uh, Ramba Mudli says protests and strikes is fine, but distractions of in destruction of infrastructure is a big no. Raymond Chetty says, regarding all people, all people should pay school fees. Um, not all people could afford it, especially before lockdown and after lockdown. Some parents are pensioners. Maybe she's uh, lucky with lots of money. Thanks. Talking to, I think, somebody who did you know, raise a point there about paying um, your own fees. A lot of people have said that. Rohini says, students refuse to be victims of injustice and oppression and act in a violent manner, putting their people's, other people's lives at risk. Government cannot afford the funding. It's a difficult situation. Ragani says, why doesn't basic education be free for lots of, par lots of parents are struggling? We saw how students was acting. What could the police do? Anonymous in Johannesburg says, in the pre-democratic era of South Africa, all teachers were paid by the government. School fees were minimal. Some paid 20 to 30 rand a year books and stationery were provided by the government parents supplied school uniforms and it was standardized across the country it would have been cheaper the system of the different racial group schools having different standards of education have been replaced by the new system of different models and private schooling to ensure the elite remain in top position this message is not in the freedom charter and people that fought and died for it it was free education and we need um, that to level the playing field and uplift this country Thorough analysis that. Thank you. Uh, Nelly from Chatsworth says, Why when police is short, no one shouts, but if it's... I think you mean when the police is shot, no one shouts, but if but um, students recognize... Okay, I don't really understand your uh, what you're saying, Nelly, but I think what you mean is, why is it that people, um, you know, did, uh, nobody raises it when police are shot? And that's also been very on the increase. And yes, we do cover it here on Newsbreak, but um, yeah, police police are always blamed. Just now we will have no police and want to take... Okay, yeah, thanks for that, Nelly. Um, I get your point. Mm. Anonymous says, the use of force by police officers is totally unacceptable. Six months ago, the type of incident occurred at my place when two 
uh, policemen disguised in plain clothes entered my home by force. I reported the matter to the brigadier. Nothing happened. However, I took it to IPED and took the matter to this uh, up of the state, who are still investigating. Police also behave in this manner and should be sentenced to a minimum of two life terms. That's by anonymous there about his uh, well, about anonymous's interaction with heavy-handedness by the police. Um, Message here from Anonymous in Joburg. Students are more uneducated as the years go on and tracing taxpayers, tracing taxpayers from this country. Where must government, um, where must government pay from? Can't they do something else? Okay. Yeah, so uh, charged points coming through here. It's it's definitely um, an interesting, interesting saga, this, talking about fees and talking about... Um, cost of education it is it is yeah you know on one hand historically many will say if i wanted an education i worked hard to get it but i think in the current climate how hard is it to get those jobs you know i think we often talk about um the time of um you know a lot of people say well my parents did it and possibly in in, in many areas where there weren't such global economic volatility and if you look at it 30, 40, even 50 years later, there's a stronger economic uh, volatility that is seeping down into a lot of countries. So, um, you know, the economy of the 50s and the sort of expenditure of a household in the 50s, compare that to the expenditure in, the, in 2020. I wonder if we could make a fair assessment about that, taking a lot of global economic pressure and a pandemic into account. So um, definitely food for thought, something for us to wrap our heads around as we take this conversation forward and forward. We are going to do so. We are expecting IPIT to provide us next week in the, uh, in the coming week some you know, um, feedback with regard to their investigation into the uh, death of Mtukuzi Sintumba. Um, I can fit in one more voice note. Let's go with Mahen. I think, you know, um, when when white people uh, can't afford school fees, they start extra businesses, work a little bit harder. When Indian Okay, run out of time there. Um, we'll try and uh, factor that in at another point. So, yeah, that's where we're going to have to leave our program today. Um, the broadcast came away courtesy of the team executive producers Salma Patel and Rachel Vadi. We'll talk again soon. Um, and you can stay tuned for regular updates. We've got some two big uh, stories uh, involving the uh, funeral service of uh, King Amazulu King's uh, Guru Zulitini and, of course, updates with regard to student protests. All of that's come your way. From me, Tadeesh, hey, have an awesome day. News break. Lotus FM, powered by SABC News.